might as well tell you he'll get along better with one nurse than two. If you feel that way. I guess you get a good idea how I feel about him. Enough of an idea to know that you're in love with him. It's easy to tell, isn't it? Just looking at me, looking at him, and you know it. Yes. Now, I hope you're satisfied. Don't try to be so superior. I wasn't even trying. All right, Miss High and Mighty, I can throw low punches, too. You're crazy about him yourself. Only you don't know how to love a man. You'd like to believe that, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be happy unless you could change him all around, turn him inside out, everything just so. Loving a man isn't always storybook pretty, but that doesn't stop you from loving him, no matter what he is or what he does. Can you do that? Can you? That's a one-way love. I'll give a man as much as you, everything. But it's got to work both ways. Yes, I love you. But I also hate you. You're listening to episode 87 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. As I've mentioned before, I'm always on the lookout to see women in a scene together. I don't even mind if they're talking about men. If women didn't talk about men, how would they cope? How would they survive them? Sometimes you find sassmouth dames in the least likely places. Say, for example, Great Day in the Morning a horse opera set on the eve of the the American Civil War, with the men on screen divided between North and South. Most seem motivated by profit rather than patriotic ideals. They're the kind of men who know that $2 million in gold is worth dying for. Virginia Mayo and Ruth Roman make an interesting pair because both women have the ability to play hard-boiled or bastions of society on the big screen. From their first screen together, they appear to be opposites, but as the film progresses, the line between good and bad woman becomes ambiguous, and then beside the point. They have, together, much more at stake than Robert Stack, who doesn't seem to care whether he lives or dies. Virginia Mayo plays Anne Allen, a lady who hires men on her crew only if they can stomach taking orders from a woman. In the opening scene, she's dressed in tight riding trousers, boots, strapped with firearms, when she and her men save Robert Stack from a group of Native Americans who have him outnumbered. Anne wants to know if he can take orders from a woman. Anne and her crew ride into Denver, which is still a small town. Anne plans to open a dress shop with her trunks that are stocked with the latest fashion. Women in the Old West were as starved for real style as a cowpoke who had nothing but tin beans. I'd like to see a whole picture devoted to her fashion enterprise, like Jane Wyman was in Lucy Gallant, which premiered the year before. Once they enter the circus tent saloon so Anne can rest and the men can play cards, The bar flies whistle and hoot as Anne in her trousers takes the stairs. Regis Toomey, as the local priest wearing a cassock, tells her not to worry that the lads used to make fun of his skirts. 
one of her hired men steps in to protect Anne from the crowd. Anne stops him. I paid you to see me across the Rockies, Steve. I think I can make it across the room on my own. As Anne ascends the stairs, she passes Ruth Roman on the way down, who takes the other corner in the love triangle that develops with Robert Stack. Ruth Roman plays Boston Grant. She walks down the stairs with an accordion slung over her shoulder. She's no doubt starting her evening shift as a saloon gal, entertaining men for money. Boston wears a a shiny satin gown and pistachio green, trimmed with a matching garter purse that she wears on her thigh. She looks like a decorated cake. She takes a look back at Virginia Mayo, who is passing, and says with obvious amusement, they sure are tight pants, while she looks at the men reacting to Anne. Boston teases the men rather than developing any hostility towards the new dame in town. Boston is smart, cagey, and she has a graduate degree in sass mouth economics. When the man she works for, the aptly named Jumbo Means, played by Raymond Burr, plays a high-stakes card game with Robert Stack's Owen Pentecost, Boston picks sides. She pulls a card from the bottom of the deck so that Jumbo loses the circus tent saloon to the new gunslinger, who's only been in town for a few hours. She cheats in the card game, but not like she was supposed to. Boston gambles that Pentecost would be a better man to work for, and at the very least, he's easier on the eyes. More than a few snide comments are tossed around about Jumbo's size. He himself recalls that one customer once looked at him and joked that an elephant had been escaped on the loose. Jumbo has since regarded elephants as his good luck symbol, perhaps because he manages to remain unscathed by frontier wits who take a poke at his waistline. Owen Pentecost owes his good fortune to Boston. He drinks a bottle of whiskey during the high-stakes poker game and insults local men assembled. Pentecost seems hell-bent on alienating everyone in town, and that includes Boston. After he has a gold mine thrown in his lap thanks to Boston, she has to help him to bed as he staggers up the stairs. Pentecost, by mistake, barges into Anne's room, then stands there ogling her. He's the wolf at the door. In an earlier scene, Anne took a bath in her room under a needle point hanging on the wall that advised in cross-stitch, be good, sweet maid, and let who may be clever. Fresh from the bath, Anne wears tight pantaloons and a corslet with a bright red hair ribbon. Owen snatches the ribbon from her hair before he's led out of the room by Boston. After Boston deposits Pentecost on the bed, she stands in front of the mirror. She's the clever girl from the cross-stitch. Boston takes Anne's ribbon and ties a bow in her hair. She makes a wise crack to Owen. Well, if hair ribbons are your weakness, why didn't you say so? She says in a demure southern accent. Boston will accommodate him with a little role play, if that's what he wishes. She can play the virgin type, if that's his fantasy. But Boston receives the first of many disappointments from Owen Pentecost. He has succumbed to the whiskey and has passed out cold. 
Boston doesn't get the sex she desires. Soon, though, Owen gives her a child, not from sex. After the gunslinger kills a man for cheating on a deal, the dead man's son Gary suddenly arrives looking for his father. Owen invites the lad to live in the saloon. Boston takes over a surrogate mother. She teaches Gary what she knows, such as sass mouth economics. In one scene, Gary figures sums on a blackboard, and he asks Boston if his answer is correct. She bustles over to the board, picks up the chalk, and fills in the dollar signs. She adds, I never make a mistake when I do that. While she adds the the dollar signs. She's wearing an apron in the scene, but she's hardly become some 19th century angel of the house. She's still Boston with her eyes stuck on the bottom line, and for her, it has dollar signs. For some men in 1850, 1950, or even today, a woman who is honest about her sexual desire is never as appealing as the one who has to be chaste. Owen Pentecost looks right through Boston and pursues Anne. He doesn't want the woman who makes no apologies for wanting him. Owen Pentecost is fixated by hair ribbons, white underwear, and virginity. The very minute that Anne begins to reciprocate his desire to show signs that she will welcome him into her bed, he suddenly loses interest. Maybe it's part of his self-loathing and latent masochism that Owen Pentecost prefers a woman's scorn. It's only a matter of time before Owen catches one of the bullets marked with his name. Laid up in bed, tended by Gary and a doctor, Anne and Boston step into the hallway of the body house to hash out who is the best woman for Owen Pentecost. Boston argues that Anne's idea of love is changing a man, making him over into what she thinks he should be, rather than accepting who he is. Boston is ride or die. A woman in love never stops loving her man no matter what he does. Boston leans against the wall, with the camera focused on the contours of her back and her cinched waistline defined by purple satin and a floral embellished neckline. She is feminine strength writ large. She says to Anne, don't try to act superior. Anne shoots back, I wasn't even trying. Anne isn't clad in menswear for this scene as she was earlier in the picture. The director, Jacques Tourner, avoids sharp contrast between their positions for the scene in the hallway. It isn't a case of merchant versus saloon gal, good woman versus bad. It's woman to woman. Anne wears a monochrome blouse and skirt accented with a black corselet. It's an overlay on top of her white blouse. It's kind of a lace-up bustier that extends her figure from a different angle than Boston. Anne is plaintive rather than cross with the brunette Boston. Anne argues that she will give a man as much as Boston, but that doesn't that doesn't mean she wants a one-way love. She expects a man to give something in return. She loves Owen, but she also pities him. Left unsaid is the reason for her pity. Owen's way is the way of the gun, and it doesn't point to any happy endings. She objects to Owen teaching Gary how to use a gun, which replicates the cycle of violence. 
Tournaire's blocking for the showdown is a standout in a film noted for the vistas of the Colorado terrain. The women face each other in a shadowy, airless interior space, which lends a greater sense of futility to the scene. There are no clear exits, only doors which lead further inward. Boston and Anne can parse the love triangle, argue it over it, and defend their pledge of love or, or their idea of love. But the man in the sickbed fails to match their emotional investment, no matter who wins him. Anne or Boston, for how long and on whose terms? A man like Owen is driven by his own demons, and he's fated to make decisions that are based on anything but love. Owen experiences a slight glimmer of hope at the ending, when he's hiding in a cave like a cornered animal, and realizes he always loved one of the women. I'll not spoil it. He may have decided to redeem himself, swear off the violence, and commit to love, but it's already too late. If Great Day in the Morning were my picture, we would see how Anne and Boston forge an alliance and build Denver up with a series of shops and entertainment venues. But if I didn't get the movie I wanted, at least I could project a vision with a better ending than the practice run for the Civil War. Out of the glaring pointed treetops and mountain range, two women standing in a hallway negotiating their corner of a love triangle is a far sight better than most of what Hollywood puts out today. Gwen Wakeling was the costume designer for Great Day in the Morning. She began her career as an assistant to Adrian for the wardrobe of Cecil B. DeMille's The King of Kings in 1927. Over decades designing for almost 150 films, Gwen dressed an equal number of men and women. She noted that the men were just as image conscious as the women. They also wanted to have a desirable silhouette in flattering clothes. Perhaps because she had so much experience dressing both men and women, the costumes for the women in Great Day in the Morning make such a strong impression. In those deerskin bridges, Virginia Mayo strikes a big contrast to Ruth Roman when they pass each other on the stairs. But over time, Virginia's ensemble is a modified version of what men wear, but the idea that men's clothing would rob her of her sex appeal is fully discredited. She may be dressed for riding the range, but she's still a purveyor of style. She has trunks full of pretties for sale. She's not about to settle for unflattering clothes or those that don't fit. Virginia Mayo's character is dressed for the task at hand. She's not trying to look like a man. When she's on horseback, she wears trousers because they're practical. In one scene when she's riding with Owen, she wears this cropped vest that looks like something that would appear on screen the following year on one of the men in gunfight at the OK Corral. Virginia wears men's clothes exactly, but fit to her own proportions. Otherwise, she wears long skirts or dresses. As she develops a sexual interest in Owen Pentecost, her clothes are not only more feminine, but more alluring. Ruth Roman's wardrobe also changes thanks to Gwen Wakeling to fit the plot and her character's motivations. When she's on the clock as the saloon entertainer slash hostess, she's wearing bright satin gowns cut low in front and back, 
during the day or her off hours when she's playing surrogate mother to Gary. She's in linen, cotton, and wool. In the scene where she helps Gary with his sums, her clothing looks as somber as a schoolmarm. Born Norma Roman in 1922, she changed her name to Ruth after a fortune teller told her mother that Norma was a bad luck name. Her parents worked in show business. Her mother was a dancer and her father was a carnival barker. Ruth's father died when she was only eight years old. The family moved from a small town in Massachusetts to Boston, where Ruth went to school and took lessons in dance and drama. After she finished high school, Ruth went to New York City. While she did the rounds of auditions, looking for a booking agent and town scouts, she worked as a cigarette girl and a hat check girl to pay the rent. She also posed for the covers of pulp magazines at $5 an hour. Ruth Roman took the train west, hoping to break into pictures. She moved into a boarding house full of aspiring actresses that became known as the House of the Seven Garbos. The landlady was a cheering squad for the young hopefuls. Ruth published two stories while she waited for a studio contract, one of which was titled The House of the Seven Garbos. You can bet I tried everything to track down a copy, but I had no luck. David Selznick signed Ruth for $75 a week. She quickly grew restless, collecting a paycheck without receiving any good work to advance her career. Frances Clark, who used to be a publicist for Selznick Studios, recalled in a June 1951 profile on Ruth for Modern Screen Magazine that Ruth had been impatient for her chance to make good as a new starlet. When Selznick was up to his eyeballs in production for Duel in the Sun, Ruth stormed into his office and managed to make her way past several underlings before she gained an audience with the boss. Ruth demanded to be released from her contract. Nothing catches the attention of a mogul like an actress who wants to be rid of him. She said she didn't want to sit around without work. Selznick replied that they gave her a script only recently, which she turned down. Ruth had argued that it was a stinker, one that would have ruined her career before it even started. To pacify Ruth, Selznick sent her back to New York for loan outs on Broadway. Nothing came of it, except Ruth felt she wasted half a year of her time. She complained again she wanted out of her contract. The studio planned to put her in summer stock, which went over like a slap in the face to Ruth. She'd already spent six years in summer stock. She told Selznick and his flunkies to shove it and gained her contract release. Next, Ruth signed with RKO Pictures. The front office turned down her request for a meeting with the new studio boss, Dory Sherry. They told her it was impossible. He was too busy. Frustrated, Ruth shouted that she thought Sherry had a big head now. For a man committed to making message pictures, one way to skip the queue and get a meeting was just as Ruth Roman had guessed, treat him like he's become the big bad wolf. Dory Sherry met with Ruth Roman and afterwards he put her in the window, which led to her being signed for her big breakout role for a champion in 1949 next to Kirk Douglas and Marilyn Maxwell. 
In an interview with Hedda Hopper in 1949, Ruth noted, I love everything about show business, even the junk. You can't change the junk. People have tried. So you might as well accept it along with the good. Acting is my life. The profession can break my heart. In fact, it already has several times, but I love it. Warner Brothers signed Ruth and put her in the Betty Davis picture, Beyond the Forest. 1951 and 1950 were Ruth's biggest years in Warner's. She starred in the classic woman's picture, Three Secrets, then Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, Lightning Strikes Twice, and The Sublime Tomorrow is Another Day, next to Steve Cochran. In that modern screen uh, magazine profile from 1951, Report on a Bride, the former Selznick publicist Francis Clark noted that when Ruth met her husband, they started off with a row. Asked what they argued about, Ruth attempted to wave it off as though it weren't important, but she remembers the topic all right. They had debated the merits of television versus film. Morty Hall just so happened to manage a television station in New York. Their heated discussion did not dampen the romance budding between them. Ruth had tickets to see Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on stage that night. Instead of going alone or waiting for Morty to ask her out, Ruth asked him to join her for the show. She said it wasn't love at first sight, but she was attracted to him. Perhaps what convinced her Morty Hall was the marrying kind was that he supported her commitment to her career. He was raised by a career woman. Dorothy Schiff, who bought the New York Post in 1939 and remained its publisher. Schiff ran the Post for decades and had a glamorous life. She had an affair with President Roosevelt, among other powerful men. In the modern screen profile, Ruth Roman is candid about her career aspirations. She wants to be as big as Betty Davis. Ruth Roman was never one of those starlets who believed that a woman's most important role was in the home. She was ambitious and deadly serious about her career. What made Morty a good husband, she noted, was that he put her to bed at 9 o'clock and woke with her at 6 a.m. He acclimated himself to her studio schedule. He made sure she was fresh for the set every day. Even their wedding was squeezed in between her production schedule. They left for Vegas one Saturday night in December 1951 from the wrap on Strangers on a Train and returned man and wife on Sunday afternoon so that Ruth could begin production on Tomorrow's Another Day. A honeymoon had no priority over a good script and a juicy part for Ruth. In 1956, Ruth Roman survived two sinking ships, the SS Andrea Doria and RKO Studio. By the time she made the picture, she had already been through the ringer with Hollywood moguls. On the ship deck aboard about midnight aboard the SS Andrea Doria, she felt the crash between her ship and the Stockholm, another passenger ship. Initially, frozen with shock, she soon snapped out of it. Ruth took off her heels and ran downstairs to the cabin where her son Dickie was sleeping with his nurse. She woke them both as she grabbed blankets and life preservers and told her son they were going on a picnic. In 1963, Ruth complained to a reporter about the lack of good roles for women. 
She lamented that she had recently played only nothing but crying women, crying mothers. She wasn't alone in that department. Only a year before, Betty Davis had taken out an ad in Variety seeking work. Virginia Mayo began life as Virginia Jones in St. Louis, Missouri in 1920. Her aunt ran this little dramatic school for children. Before one of her first stage appearances as a little girl, Virginia had accidentally wet herself before the curtain. In the true spirit of teaching the kids that the show must go on, Virginia's aunt simply decided to change the costumes and the number. Out went the wet trousers, replaced by kilts and a little Scottish number. The experience could have been traumatic, but instead it helped to make a future queen of the studio system more resilient. When things go pear-shaped, improvise and try it another way. That's what Virginia learned to do. When she was 16, she auditioned for the local Metropolitan Opera House for a position in their company for the upcoming summer season. The outdoor venue held 10,000 seats. Virginia had dreamt about being one of the 30 girls in the chorus. She was turned down on the spot and didn't make the tryouts. The following year, after she graduated from high school at age 17, Virginia tried again, but this time she went to the audition better prepared. She had sewn a costume for her tryouts in turquoise satin. It had a very short skirt done up in pleats. She was hired on the spot. During that summer of 1937, she did seven shows a week at the Opera House, performing one routine while learning the next. At the same time, she struck up friendships with other members of the company. Once the season ended, they decided to hit the local uh, hotel circuit, performing numbers together. One night, after they went upstairs in the hotel to change after a performance, a man appeared out out of nowhere in the hallway. He stopped and asked Virginia if she were in show business. Virginia thought it was an odd question since she wore full stage makeup and a very short costume. The story sounds like it's going to make a dangerous or seedy turn, but in real life it didn't. The man simply asked Virginia if she could watch his act later that night. Could she see if she liked it and if it were something she would like to do? As Virginia recalls, two men appeared on stage in either end of a horse costume. A showgirl appeared and whipped the novelty horse while telling jokes. When the act finished to applause, Virginia told the man she could do the bit on stage no problem. The act was called Pansy the Horse. The showgirl part didn't really tell jokes. It went more like this. She did one extended gag. As the horse's trainer, Virginia would ask Pansy to perform for the audience. She started out by asking the horse to show the crowd what it could do, and Pansy the horse refused to comply. Virginia would then drag a tub out on stage and say, Get up on that tub, do you hear me? Do it! Get up on that tub! Virginia held a whip in her hand and demanded the bad horse do as it was told. Naughty Pansy again refused. Then Virginia would just whip the horse and call it names for the rest of the show. That was the act, a girl in a skimpy outfit whipping the daylights out of two men in a burlap horse costume. It was a thinly veiled s and act. 
Each time they performed without fail all over the country, the audience responded with great waves of convulsive laughter. The part of the showgirl was originally played by the wife of the man Virginia had met in the hallway that night. His name was Andrew Mayo. His wife was about to have a baby and quit the show. Virginia stepped into her nylons and kept the performer's last name to, to simplify rules about billing among the vaudeville circuit. In 1942, Virginia and the boys were invited to perform their pansy act in Mrs. Astor's Pet Horse, a show staged in Billy Rose's famous Diamond Horseshoe nightclub underneath the Paramount Hotel in New York City. One night, the Hollywood mogul Sam Goldwyn was there in the audience with his wife, Frances. Billy Rose pointed out Virginia. Sam was instantly smitten with Virginia. Leela Alexander, who worked as a researcher for Goldwyn's studio, noted that the head of the studio derived a sense of aesthetic beauty from a poor boy's dream of a fairy tale princess. Goldwyn arranged a meeting in his office the next day. The tone for the working relationship started then, off kilter, when Virginia arrived without having had a chance to wash her hair. She put on a hat to cover her hair, but the first thing Goldwyn did was tell her to take off the hat. He wanted to see her face. Virginia protested that she didn't want him to see her hair dirty like that, and she wanted to keep the, hair, the hat on. Goldwyn persisted, and eventually she gave in. He told Virginia he wanted to make a screen test. Shortly after she left his office, David Oselznik was in touch. He wanted to give her a screen test as well. Virginia bounced between the two men for uh, some time. The moguls conferred. They decided that Goldwyn could do more for her at that stage in her career. Virginia signed a standard seven-year contract with Goldwyn starting at $100 a week. Virginia was thrilled when the men from the studio met her off the train in Pasadena and took her to her new apartment, which just so happened to be Ravenswood, the building that Mae West owned and called home. Virginia was gutted when the men soon returned and told her she had to move. Virginia had brought her dog along with her, and Ravenswood had a strict no-dog policy. Mae West only allowed the two-legged variety. Once Virginia was installed in Hollywood, she was scheduled with the big star buildup, which led to a series of acting and dance lessons, a charm school, and beauty treatments. Florence Enright was Virginia's drama coach. She lined up voice lessons. Eleanor King became Virginia's charm coach. She taught the new starlet how to walk and sit and move. The studio put her on a diet. Virginia went for daily facial massages. Goldwyn thought her cheeks were too full for the camera, so a masseuse worked each day on her face to make her have sculpted contours. Every night at 9 o'clock, Sam Goldwyn rang her at home to make sure she was applying herself in her lessons and that she gave her hair 100 strokes with a stiff brush before bed. In her memoir, Virginia describes the mind games that Goldwyn played. He would berate her on set, in the screening room, in his office, or over the phone. At length, he described her deficiencies and where she had gone wrong. 
After she received a dressing down, another contract player would tremble, worried that they were next in line for a verbal lashing. Virginia knew that Goldwyn was like many controlling men. They couldn't only tear you down. Occasionally, he would compliment Virginia, or he would send her off to Adrian's design house for a fitting on his tab. Virginia showed clear improvement, but when it came to working in front of a camera, she initially froze. She was put in with a new crop of Golden Girls, the studio chorus line for the musical Up in Arms. Virginia viewed the assignment as a punishment. The Golden Girls were chosen purely on their physical allure rather than any acting talent. It probably motivated Virginia to acquire greater ease in front of the camera so she could graduate from the showgirl leagues. She did move up to leading lady status, often next to Danny Kay, a man Virginia thought too temperamental and self-absorbed. The highlight of Virginia Mayo's tenure in Goldwyn Studio was when she was cast as the party girl wife of Dana Andrews in The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946. She often joked that she won the Oscar for director William Wyler because people said if he can do that with Virginia Mayo. After Goldwyn insisted she reprise Barbara Stanwyck's performance in a step-by-step remake of Ball of Fire and A Song is Born, Virginia's contract was up and she was only too happy to leave. She signed with Warner Brothers. Around this time, she married her longtime boyfriend, Michael O'Shea, on her way out of Goldwyn's. He was also an actor, but not nearly as talented or driven. Virginia was usually the breadwinner, while her husband dreamed of being a cop, moving the family to Ireland, and raising their daughter, Mary Catherine. In Warner's, she made her favorite film, She's Working Her Way Through College, in 1952. Musicals were Virginia's first love, and in this picture she has the lead and didn't have to play second fiddle to Danny Kay. She had many busy years in Warners doing film noir, westerns, and adventure pictures. In 1973, after 26 years of marriage, Virginia found her husband Michael dead in a dry bathtub one morning. She was convinced that it was a mob-related hit, a payback from the years that Michael had spent as an informant for the FBI. He had given G-men tips about racketeers in Vegas and communists in Hollywood. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Barbara Payton for episode 88.